How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to study your word, the freedom in this country to to study your word and to apply your word faithfully in our lives. We pray that as we study your word and submit our thinking to the light of what you have revealed in in your word this evening, that the Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds to what you have revealed will make these things clear and that we will be responsive uh, to what we learn and have the courage and willingness to apply them in our own thinking. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James. James chapter 2. And we will continue our study this evening on understanding salvation specifically in the area of faith and works. A couple of weeks ago we began a study of uh, faith and works. We looked at Ephesians chapter 2, and there we saw that faith is opposed to works. We're saved by faith and not from works. Now, this has caused a, uh, seems to present some something of a, a contradiction. I'm trying to pull up. Well, I'm talking, I'm trying to do two things at one time and work my way through this passage. There we are. So we can get it all up on the overhead and change a few things. Here we go. Dump that. Okay. Now, the question that we started to look at with Ephesians 2, it's the question, what is the relationship of faith and works in the salvation of the individual believer? There are, the basic question we've come to now in James 2 is, does saving faith necessarily produce works? This is the essential problem in what is called lordship salvation. Does saving faith necessarily produce works? And in lordship salvation, the answer is yes. If you're really saved, you're going to have works that are in keeping with that salvation. Now, some will quantify that. Some will make that a little more 
obvious than others. Some will try to finesse the issue and say, yes, but even faith itself is a fruit of that salvation, or they'll say that uh, it can be imperceptible faith, something that happens in the soul and may not be perceived by somebody, but there's necessary uh, production, there's necessary fruit. And there's two basic passages that are used in support of this. One is in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, and the other is found in, in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the soil. So we will spend uh, two or three Bible classes looking at both of these crucial passages. Now, as I said last time when we began this, look, I said there's three basic positions on justification that have developed historically. The first is the position that we hold at Preston City Bible Church, and that is that justification, salvation, that is entry into heaven, is determined by faith alone in Christ alone. It is faith minus works. Works are not necessary uh, at all. It is solely by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, the second position that has is predominantly taught in church history is the concept of justification on the basis of faith plus works. This is some combination of uh, faith plus baptism, faith plus morality, faith plus uh, joining a church, participation in ritual. In the Roman Catholic theology, it's faith plus participation in the sacraments, receiving grace and obedience, and you never really know when you've got enough of it. And then the third position that I have up on the screen is really the position of lordship salvation and the position of strict five-point Calvinism, and that is the position that justification equals faith plus works as the necessary result. Now, the difference between position two and position three is that in position two, faith plus works, works are stated up front as a condition of salvation. You have to believe and be baptized. That's what the Church of Christ teaches. It's called baptismal regeneration. You have to have, you have to believe in Christ and you have to keep the Ten Commandments. You have to believe in Christ and avoid certain sins. Whatever it is, it's stated right up front. It's clear that it's not simply faith alone. The third position is much more subtle because they would say that, and this is a position of lordship salvation, that, you, that the works come along afterwards, that if you're really saved, there will be certain works, certain fruit that gives evidence of salvation. And if that fruit's not there, then you should question whether or not you are actually saved. And in that position, they believe that you can have... Um, you can believe in Jesus and not really be saved. That's what we looked at last time is the historical uh, development of this position as it was re- related to the theology of Augustine and developed in the uh, 4th century A.D. as a result of his shift from premillennialism to amillennialism and his misinterpretation of Matthew chapter 24 where you find the statement that those who persevere to the end will be saved. And he took that, that salvation there as justification salvation. And so the position that developed in Augustine's theology was that you had to persevere in your faith, and the true believer would persevere to the very end. This was picked up later by Calvin, not at the beginning, because Calvin initially followed Luther in a correct understanding of justification 
as as forensic justification that a person is forensically saved. It's a uh, an act of the Supreme Court of Heaven declaring the individual to be justified. And even though he is at one time completely justified, at the same time, this is the paradox, he may be a lousy, rotten sinner submerged in carnality. But on the other hand, positionally, he is justified before God. So Calvin took that position, but then in response to the counter-reformation, not really the counter-reformation, the, the attack, the counter-attack from the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent and the counter-charge that this would just produce antinomian Christians. You can't control them if they're saved and they don't have to produce necessary works or any kind of works of morality, then you're going to lose control. And so he uh, modified his position to an Augustinian position that the, those who are really saved will uh, produce moral works in relationship to that. So that's how you get the P in the acronym TULIP for the five points of Calvinism. So last time we covered the basic historical uh, background to lordship salvation, and that is essential, an essential part of Calvinistic theology. Now the contradiction that we see in, in Scripture when you come to James chapter 2 and comparing it with other scriptures, is that it appears that James is saying that works are are included in the in, in, with faith, and there other passages seem to exclude works completely. For example, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 states, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, and we studied that and saw that that, that refers to the by grace salvation that we have, the by grace salvation is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is simply through faith. It is not as a result of works. So works seem to be completely excluded by Ephesians 2.9. Then in Titus 3.5, we have a similar statement. He saved us not on the basis of works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And that phrase, works which we have done in righteousness, indicates works that are meritorious works that are meritorious, works that somehow uh, bring us credit or merit or approbation from God. But Titus 3.5 excludes that, as does Romans 11.6, which states that if it, that is salvation, is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. And there we have the phrase in, in the Greek, the preposition ek, plus the genitive of Aragon, which means from the source of works. So works are excluded as a source of our salvation. And then Paul says, otherwise grace is no longer grace. So Paul's clear statement in Ephesians 2, 9, Titus 3, 5, and Romans 11, 6, is that when works become the basis for salvation, grace is nullified. Faith plus anything destroys the faith and destroys grace. It's no longer a gift. But when we first look at James, it looks like James is saying something a little different. Look up on the overhead. I've got, I think that's large enough for you to read it. In James 2.14, James states, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, 
being by itself. Now, at first glance, it would seem to suggest that what James is talking about here by the use of the word save in verse 14 is entry into heaven. Now, that seems then, if it's taken that way, it would seem that Paul and James would completely disagree with one another as to the role of works. That's one option. However, since God the Holy Spirit is the co-author of all Scripture, and God the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself, furthermore, we must, we must credit the early church fathers and others with the recognition that, that uh, they weren't stupid, and they would recognize this as a contradiction if it were a contradiction, that James must not be contradicting Paul. He must be talking about something other than entry into heaven when he, talks, when he uses the word saved. So when we look at this passage, and this is one of the most crucial passages, and will probably take us a couple of weeks to go through it, we have to pay attention to some key words. What exactly does James mean when he uses the word saved? What does he mean by dead faith? That's what he says in verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead. So what is dead faith? Is that non-existent faith, or is it non-operational faith? Those are the two options. Is it a faith that doesn't exist, or is it a faith that just is not working and is not operational? To that, we have to had an understanding of the concept of works in verse 17, faith without works. What is the meaning of works in verse 14? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? What does James mean when he uses the word works? And then before we're done... We're going to have to understand what are the meaning of the word justification. Look down at verse 21. He, in his last section here in this illustration, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Well, Paul says we're justified by faith and not by works. So James seems to be saying that Abraham was justified by works. So what exactly is going on here? So there's going to be four key terms that we have to understand before we can properly interpret this passage. What is the meaning of saved? What is the meaning of dead works? What is the meaning of works? Or excuse me, what's the meaning of dead faith? What's the meaning of works? And what's the meaning of justification? Now, in James, we have to, in order to understand James, we have to properly understand the context. That's what's critical in understanding any book of the Bible is you always have to look at the context of any particular verse because it's very easy to go in and misinterpret a passage simply because you don't properly understand the context. Context not only involves the historical situation and the historical context, but it also involves the immediate literary context, the verses surrounding the, uh, the verse in question. In the previous section of James... I want you to notice that James has been addressing a, a sinful attitude on the part of his readers. The problem is one of prejudice, prejudice, uh, favorable prejudice towards uh, the wealthy unbelievers that are coming in the congregation who are also, at the same time, uh, antagonistic to Christianity. They persecute the Christians, and then they, on the other hand, these wealthy unbelievers show up, and they are 
treated in a special way. Verse 3, we read, or verse 2 says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor person, You sit, stand there, sit here at the footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That is, they operate on mental attitude sins and carnal motivation as they seek to curry favor with those who have been, and the unbelievers who have been antagonistic to them. The reason he uses, brings in this illustration is it illustrates the point that James is making in the overall section of this epistle. And that is that the believers that he is addressing are not applying doctrine. They are learning a lot of doctrine, but they are not applying doctrine. And furthermore, since they're only learning doctrine, not applying doctrine, they're operating in carnality. And this becomes clear if you look back at James chapter 1, verse 21. It gives them a mandate there. He says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and the excess which evil is. That's a corrected translation. The excess which evil is, and receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, the verb there to lay aside is apatithemi, and it is in a participle, an anarthrous participial construction there, and it is used as a participle of what's called attendant circumstances. Now, when you get past all that grammar, what that means is that the participle, when used with a, an imperative verb as it is in this particular situation, sets up a, a grammatical situation where the participle states the conditions the conditions that must be satisfied before you can fulfill the mandate. See, the mandate is to receive with humility the implanted word. But before they can receive with humility the implanted word, they have to do something. That's what's stated in the participle of attendant circumstance. You see the same thing, if you hold your place there, you see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. In fact, it's the same verb. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word. So Peter is saying almost the same thing that James is saying, to take in the Word. But before you take in the Word, you have to uh, set aside the sin in your life. And that is what we call confession of sin, the application of 1 John 1, nine, before you can start taking in the Word. And then in verse 22, James gives the main idea of this entire section. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word doesn't mean, as it's taken superficially, that you have to be active in church. That's not what James is saying. What James is saying is you have to apply the doctrine that you're learning. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't just be cramming your notebooks full of doctrine. Don't just be on some sort of academic uh, intellectual trip learning a lot of things about the Bible. You have to remember what we've been studying and what we studied this last Sunday morning in 1 Corinthians. Knowledge isn't crucial 
and is stressed throughout Scripture that the Christian life is a life based on right thinking. And to have right thinking, you have to learn the Word of God. But you can you can learn it in such a way that you're just focusing on it as mere academic knowledge of what uh, the New Testament emphasizes as gnosis as opposed to epinosis or full knowledge, which is what the Holy Spirit has has uh, converted and stored in the uh, cardia, the heart of our soul, for our use and application of spiritual life. And this is what James is doing. He is emphasizing a- application. So he says, don't be uh, hearers only, but be doers. By hearers, he means simply learning, and doers are those who learn plus apply. So the issue is not learning versus not learning. It's versus simply learning and learning plus application. He goes through... The, first, the last part of chapter 1, establishing that principle, and then in the first 13 verses of chapter 2, he focuses on a specific area of application that is necessary in this, in this section. So 2, 1 through 13, focuses on areas where they need to apply what they have been learning in their own church life and in their personal life, specifically in the area of impersonal love related to verse 8 and the statement of the royal law, a quote from Deuteronomy uh, chapter, uh, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which we studied this last Sunday morning in First John. Isn't it interesting how everything sort of comes together? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This was the problem when they were uh, exercising favoritism. And he's going to come back to an application of that principle starting in verse 14. But in verse 14 down through 26, he uses the term faith and works. Now, if you look up here on the overhead, what you've seen is I have paralleled hearing with faith and doing with works. Now you say, well, faith seems to be uh, an act of trusting God, but faith is used in two ways in the Scripture. It's used in an active sense, which is the act of believing or trusting God, and then it is used in a passive sense to refer to that which is believed, that is your doctrine. We ask somebody, what is your faith? What do you believe? We have a doctrinal statement that expresses our faith. So faith here is used in the sense of doctrine or that which is believed. So hearing, people come along and they go to Bible class and they learn the word and they store it in their notebook and they say, well, this is what I believe. This is my doctrine. This is, this is my faith that I hold to. And so hearing is, is analogous to faith. Doing is analogous to works, so that the end of this section, verses 14 through 26, which is the subject that we're studying, is parallel to the first part, hearing and doing, and both of them are addressed to brethren, to believers. Both of them are addressed to believers, so he's talking to believers about applying what they're learning, applying the doctrine that they have studied. He is not talking to unbelievers about how to be 
how to gain eternal life. Now, when we look at the section we're going to study, verses verses 14 through 26, we have to realize that we'll break it down into a simple outline. The first section gives us the principle, and that's what we'll probably get covered this evening, verses 14 through 17. And the principle is that doctrine without application is useless. That's exactly what James is talking about. When he says, can that faith save him, he's not talking about, as we'll see, he's not talking about entering into heaven. He's talking about whether or not his doctrine has applicational value for his spiritual life. Then we'll see that there's a voice of an objector in verses 18 and 19, that someone comes along and raises an objection to his point that Faith is useless unless it has application. So the objector's position is doctrine's all you need. You don't need to apply anything. And then in 2.20 to 26, Abraham and Rahab are used as illustrations of those in the Old Testament who applied doctrine, and it had that application of doctrine had value for their spiritual life. So if you rip this out of context then you're going to end up with a problem. Now, let me give you another little insight on understanding this passage. Because whether you know it or not, there's probably about 30 or 40 pastors who listen regularly to what goes out on the Internet and also to tapes, and they need to hear a little technical stuff like this. If you go and you pick up, with, to my knowledge, with one exception, there may be two exceptions, but uh, I only know of one. I, there might be another one. Any commentary on the epistle of James, they're written by people, by scholars, by theologians, by commentators who come out of a Reformed or Calvinistic background. And in almost every single one of those, those commentaries, they will make a statement such as that James is like the James is like the Proverbs uh, of the New Testament. It's a book of wisdom. It's just a collection of various sayings. It's just a collection of various things that need to be applied in the Christian life. It's the most practical of all the New Testament books, but there's no unified theme to the book of James. And years ago, the first time I studied James, I read through the top eight or nine commentaries, and every one of these commentators made that same point. Now, the reason that's important is if you look at James as being just a collection of individual statements about different issues in application of the Christian life, and there's no unified theme, then you can come to a section such as verses 14 to 26 and just take it right out of context and treat it in a manner that is completely separate from the rest of the epistle. However... James himself states that there is a theme and a unified organization to this epistle. If you look at verse uh, 19 of chapter 1, James says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. What James is saying there is that there's an organization. Swift to hear is the first section having to do with hearing and doing. Slow to speak is the second section, roughly the first half of chapter 3, which dealt with sins of the tongue. 
And then from the, the middle of chapter 3 on, there's the problem of mental attitude sins in the congregation, slow to wrath. So James clearly states that there is an organizational unity to this, this epistle. And if, but if you come at it from the position that there's no organizational unity, then you're going to easily be able to just cut this out, out of context and treat it as an independent unit without relating it at all to the flow of James' thought. And then it's real easy to end up making this passage deal with justification. Okay, let's begin with the first verse. James 2.14, James asks a rhetorical question in order to emphasize a point. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if a man states that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith, the New American Standard says, can that faith save him? The King James leaves out the that, but, but I think it's better as the New American Standard translates it. The anticipated answer to the question, the way he structures the question uh, in, in the Greek, anticipates an answer of no. He raises this question to e- emphasize that that faith cannot save him. That faith without works is not able to save someone, and this is further supported by the conclusion he arrives at in verse 17 where he states, Thus also faith by itself if it doesn't have works, is dead. So whatever he is saying is that faith alone, faith that is without works, whatever he means by works, is not enough. Enough for what? See, we have to read uh, proactively. You have to always learn to read and ask questions of what an author says. He says faith minus works isn't enough, but isn't enough for what? What he says in context is isn't enough for salvation. Now, many people don't have any problem with this because they have always believed that works were part of salvation. And they look at somebody who's, uh, who's unemployed, who's a drug addict, who commits certain sins, whatever they are, usually some sort of sexual perversion, and they say, well, you know, that person probably wasn't ever saved because, because well, you know, they got involved in an affair and they're homosexual or, or whatever it might be. Uh, they probably weren't ever, they, they've always been on drugs, they never were able to get rid of drugs, and you look at the kind of, of uh, things that they're involved in in their life, look at the, the way they talked, look at the way they dress, look at all of this, that person probably wasn't ever saved. And, and the, see, the assumption there is that somehow overt works indicates saved or, or indicates your eternal salvation status. Now, in order to understand what James is saying, we have to do what I stated originally, and that is to look at the words and the concepts as James uses them. This is one of the most important things to do in any kind of biblical study, is that to recognize that different writers use the same word in different ways. We have seen this in our study of John, that John uses the word abide in him. He uses that phrase in him primarily to speak of relationship and fellowship with Christ. Paul, on the other hand, uses the phrase in Christ, which is very similar, uh, to indicate positional truth, that which we receive at the instant of salvation. So writers, different writers, different personalities can use the same word in different ways, and you have to understand how a writer is using that word, and sometimes he can shift a meaning of the word 
from section to section, and so you have to pay attention to the uh, general context. Three points that we have to recognize on the concept of, of word meaning. First of all, many words have more than one meaning or nuance. In fact, I remember looking up in a, in a in Liddell Scott years ago the different meanings for the word lagos, and there were well over uh, uh, 15 or 20, I can't remember the exact number now, but 15 or 20 different meanings assigned to the word lagos. So often a word is used in a general sense, and then in other passages it's used in a more technical way. Sometimes we've seen that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 9 through 14, we see the use of the word pneuma six or seven different times for spirit. And it means attitude, it means thought, it means the Holy Spirit, and it means the spirit of man. Four different meanings at least can be discerned in that one section. So you have to pay very close attention to the immediate context of a word. And when we come to a word like saved, we have to be careful to recognize that in our culture, in American uh, evangelicalism and popular theology, it's typical for us to think of saved simply in the sense of getting into heaven and having an eternal, eternal destiny with God. And we ask somebody, are you saved? Meaning, are you going to go to heaven? However, the Bible uses the word in different ways. We have our chart. There are three stages of salvation. We talk about phase one, which is justification salvation, where we are saved from the penalty of sin, which means our eternal destiny is heaven. Then the Bible talks about what we call phase two salvation, where we are saved from the power of sin as we learn the word of God and under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, we obey the Lord, apply doctrine in our life, and advance and grow spiritually. And then phase three, glorification, we are saved from the presence of sin when we receive our resurrection body and there's no more sin nature. So we have to ask the question, whenever we see the word saved, is this phase one salvation, phase two salvation, or phase three salvation? Is it justification salvation or sanctification salvation? Now, the second point related to word meaning is that the root meaning of sozo, the Greek word for saved, is to deliver. So the exact nature of the deliverance is going to be determined by context. In some context, sozo means to heal from a disease, and it should be translated healing. And there's an example of that in James chapter 5. Uh in other passages, saved has to do with, with future deliverance at the point of death when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. So you have to pay attention to the concept, I mean to the context, and how the author uses it. And the context of James, this is the third point, the context of James indicates that James is addressing uh, believers, and he's talking about being saved as part of the Christian life. Now, notice, go, turn back to chapter 1, verse 18. This is going to give us the context. So let's uh, recognize that the third point, I had three points on word meaning. Words have more than one meaning. The root meaning of saved is deliver, so you have to look at the context. And third, the context of James indicates that he's not talking about 
uh, phase one, but phase two, the Christian way of life. So now we're going to shift and have six points on understanding the context. First of all, James is addressing believers. James is addressing believers. How do we know that? Look at verse 18. Verse 18, James says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by means of the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the firstfruits among his creatures. He brought us forth. This is talking about regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration. So he, he uses the word us to include himself along with his readers. And he says that we all, you and I, have been brought forth by the word of truth. That indicates that they're saved. They're the first fruits of salvation. Second, James addresses the recipients as fellow believers. In 2.14, he says, what use is it, my brethren? He uses the phrase, my brethren, or brethren, in 1.2. My brethren counted all joy. In 1.16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. In uh, 2.19, he says, so then, my beloved brethren. In 2.1, he says, my brethren. In 2.5, he says, my beloved brethren. In 3.1, he says, my brethren. And then in 3.10, he states, uh, my brethren again. And in 3.12, my brethren. So he's clearly addressing them as fellow believers, as fellow members of the royal family of God. So point number one, James is addressing them as believers, as regenerate in 118. Point number two, he calls them brethren, so they are fellow believers, 214 and the other verses I cited. And then the third point is confirmed by verse 19. Verse 19, he says, this you know... Um, in 119, uh, or 118, excuse me, they have been brought forth by the word of truth. So they have been uh, regenerate. Now, the fourth point is seen in ver the context of 119, that he is addressing them as brethren in terms of Christian life principles. Three principles, quick to hear. That means to make doctrine the highest priority in your life and don't be distracted from learning doctrine. Slow to speak. Apply it to what you say. Apply it to the sins of the tongue. And third, slow to anger. Apply it to mental attitude sins. And point number five, as we've already seen, the first division in James chapter 1, from verse 21 down to 226, deals with the priority of learning doctrine, not just, not just simply gaining academic information, but applying it consistently in your life. This is seen specifically in verse 25 where he says, The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a, it says effectual doer, but actually in the Greek it says it's poietes, for effectual. And poietes is from the uh, verb poieo, which means to do or uh, apply, and that's the same word he's been using uh, all along for doers, plus the word ergu, ergu, from ergon, meaning works. So it's a doer of works. It's not an effectual doer, but a doer of works. 
Now remember that. He because when you get down to two fourteen he says, What value has faith without works? So he says right back here the contrast is between someone who hears and forgets and one who who hears and does works or applies what they have learned. And then the sixth point in terms of general context is that James' point is that application is necessary to save the soul. Well, we've already seen that save the soul doesn't mean justification, so it must mean to save the life in terms of, of spiritual life growth. In James 1.21, he states, Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and actually that should be putting aside all filthiness and the excess which wickedness is, in humility you have to have grace orientation and have already confessed your sins before you can learn. You, the key to learning in life is to be humble and to be teachable. Nobody can learn anything if they're not humble. Nobody can learn anything if they think they already know all the answers. In humility, receive the word implanted. Now, they're already saved. They're to take in the word which is able to save your souls. It is the word that produces spiritual life growth. This is what Jesus said when he prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is the word of God that is the means of sanctification. So James 1.21, it's lay aside the sin in your life through confession of sin, and then take in the word uh, which is able to save your souls. Now this is also an idiom here. The term save your soul, the term for soul here, uh, suke, is also used in many passages to simply refer to life. It just stands for life. It's the, what is able to, to bring real life to your life, not just biological existence, but the abundant life, what Jesus talked about in John 10.10 10, when he said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. So James is talking about that same kind of life. This is a clear theme from the Old Testament where we see the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Your actual life in phase two is going to be qualitatively different if you apply doctrine. That's the point. If you apply doctrine, you're going to be ha- have happiness, you're going to have stability, you're going to have joy, you're going to be able to face problems and solve them without converting the outside pressure of adversity into uh, stress in the soul. And if you apply doctrine, then you will live longer, generally speaking. Remember, that's a proverb, not a promise. A promise means it's unconditional. A proverb means it's generally true. Always remember that. These are not called promises. They're called proverbs. There's always some parents who come along when they when their kids go through that prodigal son stage and they go to a passage in Proverbs and where it says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. That is a generally true principle. It is not always true. There are exceptions. It's not a promise. It's a proverb. That's, that's the difference. Uh, I know of one man who was the... Uh, uh, Dean of Men at Dallas Seminary and Chaplain at Dallas Seminary when I was a student there, who the last I heard, his son was still in Houston. His son was in his 70s by that time because Dr. Sumi went to be with the Lord many years ago. His son was in his 70s. His son was still not a believer. 
Now, he had a daughter that was a believer, but he had a son that never did become a believer. So, it's not always true, but it is generally true. Proverbs 11:19. He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues, pursues evil will bring about his own death. This is not talking about eternal life. This is talking about the impact of doctrine on a day-to-day basis in a believer's phase two existence. Proverbs 13:14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. In Proverbs 14:12, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And then Proverbs 14:27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. So the principle throughout these passages is that that life, application of doctrine, produces an abundant life, a joy, a quality, a capacity for life uh, in phase two that is missing without doctrine. Now James' message, starting in verse, verse 14, is to basically refute those who claim that all you have to do is have doctrinal knowledge, that just learning doctrine alone is going to somehow lift you into Christian maturity. It's just having amassing a lot of information about the Bible and about theology. In essence, James is saying the same thing that we've seen Paul say in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, and that is that knowledge or gnosis, not epinosis, but just simply academic knowledge, makes arrogant, but love edifies. Notice in 1 Corinthians 8.1, the contrast is between arrogant knowledge and knowledge with love. And James is making the same point. He even emphasizes love back in chapter 2, verse 8. So James says, what does it profit? He uses the Greek word aphalos, which, mean, which refers to something um, that pertains to a benefit to be derived from some object, event, or state. It refers to an advantage, a value, a purpose. It can even refer to application. So what James is asking is, what value is it to your spiritual growth if, if someone says he has doctrine but does not have application. This is the essence of the verse in, term, in, in corrected translation. What value is it for spiritual growth, my brethren, if someone claims to have correct doctrine, but he does not have application? So he has faith without works. That's his principle. He has doctrine without application. That's what faith without works means. Now, this brings us to that point of understanding what faith is, which I emphasized in the introduction. If someone says he has faith. Now, the significance of faith is that it's used in James 16 times. And this is the fifth use of the noun, but it's the first time that is used without the article with it. Previously, it has had the article. Now, when we look at a a principle of grammar in Greek, it's when you have an abstract noun like faith. When it it lacks the article or when it is anarthrous, it emphasizes the quality of the noun. And in that kind of a context, um, 
the article has an anaphoric sense. That is, it, it goes back and emphasizes that faith. So the first time we have faith here is if someone says he has faith, that has the article. And then the next question, can faith save him without the article? That means that it refers right back to the previous faith. So can that faith save him? So that's why the New American Standard has a, a better position. Zane Hodges, in his book, Gospel Under Siege, says that the basic idea here is that can the fact that a man holds correct beliefs and is biblically orthodox save him from the deadly consequences of sin in his day-to-day life? That is the main idea here. Can faith without application bring sanctification or spiritual growth in a person's life? Now, James, once we understand that and we correctly formulate the question based on the context and lexical studies, we realize that James is not addressing the question of the relationship of works to faith in Christ for eternal destiny. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the, the, uh, the relationship of application to doctrinal knowledge for spiritual growth. And that fits the context, not only the immediate context of chapter 2, but the context of the entire epistle. And it fits the next application. The next application isn't related at all. I mean, the next verse isn't related at all to eternal salvation. He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. Notice how this fits the context. In the early part of chapter 2, he says, For there should come into your assembly uh, a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. Notice the contrast between the wealthy person and the destitute person. So in verse 15, he says that, that you've been showing favoritism to that wealthy person, but what if, hypothetical case, a brother or sister, another believer, comes into the congregation in a destitute fashion? And all you do, and this is what they were doing, actually, and all you do is say to them, go in peace. You just give them words. You say, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Now, when you come to verses like this today, there always has to be a caveat. Now, this is talking about somebody who's another believer. You're aware of their situation. They're not just some loser who who's irresponsible and and uh, misusing everything, but this is someone who has a genuine need, a genuine financial need in their life, that as believers we should be willing to help them, to give them what they need, and this is part of application of doctrine, the whole point of, of, of uh, impersonal love. On Sunday morning, remember, we went over the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here was a Good Samaritan who found the man who had been... Uh, uh, mugged along the side of the road. He'd been beaten up. He had everything taken away from him. And the, the Samaritan doesn't even ask, well, does he deserve my help? Is he really a good guy? He picks him up. He does what he, he ministers first aid. He takes him to the local inn. He pays his bill. He does what is necessary to take care of the individual. He is applying doctrine. And that's the point of this illustration, is that the contrast is between the person who doesn't apply doctrine and just says something nice, just mouths some nice little platitudes, and the believer who recognizes a genuine need and does what he can, even if it costs him something, to, um, to solve the problem.
He is applying doctrine, and therefore it has value. He is facing a, a people test, and he is using doctrine and impersonal love in order to solve the problem of people tests. It's not just that doctrine is something nice to learn, but it has practical and beneficial value in the everyday events of life. And so James concludes by saying, even so then, faith, that is doctrine, if it has no works, if there's no application related to it, it's dead being by itself. And we could paraphrase this or give a corrected translation. Thus also faith by itself, that is doctrine alone, if it does not have application, is dead. So now we have to answer the question, what is dead faith? Is dead faith a faith that never existed? See, that's the position of lordship salvation, that this is a faith that never existed. He's not really saved. He's not going to go to heaven because he never had genuine faith. So their solution is that dead faith is a non-existent faith. The other option is that it's existent. It's just not operational. So let's make some observations related to dead faith. First of all, when you see a creature that is dead... We're going to have a warm-up tomorrow. We'll probably see a little roadkill out on the roads out in front. When you see a creature that is dead, there's one thing you can know for sure. It was formerly alive. It has to be alive first before it can be dead. So therefore, dead doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that it never existed. It means it is presently non-functional, but that at one time there was genuine life there. Point number two, when we understand the, con the contextual emphasis in James on developing capacity for life, that is saving the soul, capacity for life, we see that the issue for James is living out the spiritual life, pursuing spiritual maturity, and avoiding carnality and self spiritual self-destruction. Third, we have to be careful how we define dead, because in the New Testament, the, the word dead, or the concept of death, is, uh, is complex. There are seven kinds of death in the Bible. There is spiritual death, which is separation from God, absence of the human spirit. Every, every person is born physically alive, but spiritually dead. They have to be born again or put their faith alone in Christ alone, trust Christ alone for their salvation if they're going to become spiritual, spiritually alive and have a spiritual life. Second, there's physical death. That goes without, does not need any explanation. Third, there's sexual death. It's applied to Abraham when he was 100 years old and was past the point when he could have a child. Same with Sarah, his wife. There is positional death, that is, in, uh, in Christ, at the instant of our salvation, we are identified with his death, uh, burial, and resurrection. So we are identified positionally with his death, so that his death is our death, and our penalty is paid. Fourth, there is carnal death, carnal death, which occurs when we live in carnality outside of the outside of our abiding in Christ, fellowship with the Holy Spirit, living on the basis of the sin nature. There is operational death, which is a similar concept, and that and then there is second the second death, which is eternal condemnation. These are the seven kinds of death in the Bible. 
Now, we have to look at a parallel here with verse 20. In verse 20, we have the question, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And the point here is that that death there, faith without works is dead, uses the word uh, arge in the majority text, which I think is a superior text. And there it has the idea of not being of being idle, not producing or not accomplishing something. It refers to idle workers in Matthew 20, verse 3. So in verse 20, the parallel is not with is with the concept of something that is non-operational based on the use of the word arge. The conclusion then is that James is talking about uh, something that is non-productive, something that isn't producing something, that's something that's not valuable, something that isn't producing any benefit or value to the individual. Doctrine alone without application isn't going to get you any kind of spiritual growth. It's not uh, knowledge of doctrine that it isn't that knowledge of doctrine automatically produces spiritual growth. It's knowledge of doctrine plus the filling of the Holy Spirit plus application produces spiritual growth. You have to apply what you learn. Now that's the point of the first four verses. What does it what value is it to your spiritual life, my brethren, if someone says that he has doctrine, but he does not apply it? Can that doctrine mature him spiritually? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them simply, uh, Depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you do not give them any, the things which are needed for that body, what value is that spiritually? You're not applying a thing. Thus, also, faith by itself, doctrine alone, if it does not have application, is not operational and is, is not valuable or beneficial for spiritual growth. Now, in verse 18, we're going to have someone who objects, and that gets into a complicated exegesis in the next three or four verses, so we will wait until next time to cover that. The point is that this is not a text indicating that you have to have some sort of works that goes along with genuine faith. All that is required at salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. Once you are saved, if you then take in the word... It will have benefit for your life here and now. But if you don't take in the Word, it's not going to have any benefit. It's not going to have any value. There won't be any spiritual growth. And you'll think that, well, I may go to heaven, but Christianity really isn't worth much. And the issue then is volition, whether or not you're willing to apply the Word in day-to-day living. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your Word and opportunity to be challenged by the importance of application, that it's not simply learning facts, but it is assimilating them under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. As we believe these things they are stored in our soul, then we have the decision to apply them in everyday life. And it's through application that the Holy Spirit uses it to produce spiritual growth and spiritual uh, fruit, as per Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.